am going to this morning and uh, probably next week and maybe a week after that. I'm not sure, but I think it'll just take two weeks. I'm going to speak about something that uh, is very um, deep inside of me, I'm very passionate about. Uh, I'm going to entitle this, The Cross and the Sword. The Cross and the Sword, and this particular message will be called Taking America Back for God. A question mark. Ooh. <laughs> I heard some oohs over there. Uh, the reason I really feel led strongly to talk on this topic is because politics is in the air. You may have noticed that. And, and, and it's, it's going to get hotter, hotter before it gets cooler. Uh, we're in an election year. And there's a lot of talk uh, going on, a lot of emails being sent, a lot of marches being done, a lot of campaigns going around, a lot of talk, a lot of buzz about religion and politics. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I don't talk much about politics. And some have wondered why. It seems like the evangelical thing to do. And I've even heard from one source that some have thought that maybe it's because I'm afraid of offending people. <laughs> you know I live in the fear of that one. There's a little more thought behind it than that, and, and uh, that's what I want to be sharing here uh, the next couple weeks. Uh, this actually... From my perspective, this cuts to one of the most central problems of the church in America. I believe that the church in America has, to a large degree, fused the cross and the sword. I believe that especially in the conservative Christian church, uh, we have, to a large degree, sold out to the culture. We are worldly in the worst sense of the term. And what concerns me most is that it's hardly ever noticed. In fact, when someone does notice it, there's often, often hostility uh, directed towards them. What I'm going to share here uh, will be new to some of you, if, especially if you come from white evangelical churches and, and you're now here. I just encourage you to stay open to the Word of God and just, as with every other message, weigh it in terms of uh, how it lines up with the Word of God. If nothing else, you'll know kind of where, where we're coming from and why we do what, I, what we do. But I believe that this is a message that God wants you to hear. Uh, I want to open with a word of prayer even before I get into reading the text. And I need some intercessors this morning around the auditorium. Will you raise your hand if you'll just keep me covered in prayer? I need a couple more. I feel like we're taking on a religious giant here. And we need covering. Okay, thank you. Father, uh, these kids just proclaim that you are their king. Beautifully proclaimed. That you are their captain and they're enlisted in the army. And we sang earlier about you are our king. You are our one and only king, not Caesar. And Father, I pray this morning that the clarity of the distinctness, the radical uniqueness of your kingship and our calling as kingdom people would be uh, God seen and felt and experienced this morning in a transforming way. Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come in our mind as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come in our hearts, in our lives, and in this church as it is in heaven, Lord. And help us, I pray God, to see with crystal clarity the radical, radical uniqueness of the kingdom of God. And therefore, the radical, unique call of kingdom of God people. And God, help us to trust the cross more than the sword. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, buckle your seatbelts. Matthew chapter 20. 
Some people were fighting about who's going to be in the power position, the position of authority when they get to heaven. So Jesus calls his disciples together and says, said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and, and their great ones are tyrants over them. That's the way you do kingdom life in the world. You have power over others. But he says, it will not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. He's not saying there, by the way, that it's sort of you have to work your line up the chain of command. He's saying, in fact, in the kingdom of God, the greatest one is the one who serves. That's the unique power of the kingdom of God. It's found in serving. Just as, note that, just as, he is our model. We are to imitate him. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What Jesus brings is a radically unique, different kind of kingdom. It's upside down to every form of the kingdom of the world. Uh, it's uh, the first our last, the last our first. Uh, the power is found in imitating Jesus by coming under others rather than by trying to gain the upper hand and getting authority over others. When Jesus was being arrested in Matthew 26, I looked to his disciples that this was the end of the world. They were always hoping for a Messiah who would come and kick some Roman behind and, and free the Jews from the Roman oppression. And so they were in the garden, and suddenly, as Jesus was being arrested, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Power over the sword. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword, all who take the sword, will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In a moment of crisis, it's easy to trust the sword, to uh, vie for position and try to get power over others. And this was a moment of crisis for the disciples. But what Jesus says here, by way of example, is this. This isn't how my kingdom's going to be built. My kingdom is not about cutting off the ear of somebody. My kingdom is rather about healing the ear of somebody, even when that somebody ha has declared themselves as your enemy. My kingdom will go forward by me going to the cross. That's how this kingdom is going to be won, by me demonstrating unsurpassable love towards my enemies by letting them crucify me. That's the unique authority and the unique character of the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of the world. In John 18, when Jesus was before Pilate in the course of their conversation, Jesus said, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this world. See, if my kingdom was of this world, if it was, a, if it was one more version of the kingdom of the world, well, then we'd be doing what the kingdom of the world always does. We'd be fighting. We'd be vying for position. We'd be trying to get power over, but... You see, this kingdom is the kingdom of God. And the way it's going to go forward is by doing the opposite of that. I could call legions of angels, but instead, I'm going to lay down my life and die. And that's how the kingdom of God goes forward. And lock this one in. We are called to imitate Jesus Christ. In fact, the distinctive mark of the disciple is the word Christian means Christ-like. Uh, to be Christian is to imitate Jesus. And the kingdom of God goes forward wherever there are people who are imitating Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, for example, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God. Mimic. The word, the word in Greek literally means to mimic. Do exa shadow God. Whatever you see him do, you do. 
What does that mean? Well, he looked to Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, live in love. Live in love. What does love mean? Well, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, mimic that, shadow that. Calvary type of love, that's what you do. At all times and all places, as long as you're breathing, as long as you have uh, neurons going off in your brain, you mimic the cross towards all people at all times, even for your enemies. That's the distinctive character of the Christian. That's the distinctive character of the kingdom of God. Where that is present, the kingdom of God is present. Where that is not present, the kingdom of God is not present. I don't care what else is present. Yes. Well, whenever you hear a thunderclap, that, that will mean that God's approving. <laughs> we'll just get... I, I, I prayed this morning, throw in some timely ones, all right. In Luke 14, Jesus said, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, saying the same thing. See what I do? You do it. That's what it means to be my disciple. Now, I'm going to give a little background here. I'm going to give a little history here, and then I'm going to apply it uh, to America here. And in doing all of this, I'm kind of laying the foundation for what I'm going to be talking about next week and perhaps the week after. Uh, I will raise probably more questions than I will answer, but it's necessary foundational stuff. The background is this. Throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, you find two kingdoms talked about. They're radically opposed to one another. You have the kingdom of the world and you have the kingdom of God. The distinctive mark of the kingdom of the world is that it's characterized by having power over others. Uh, that's what I mean by the sword. I don't just mean violence. I'm not primarily talking about violence. But I mean having the ability to coerce others. Uh, through laws and through the threat of punishment if those laws are broken. That's the nature of the kingdom of this world. It seeks to bring about a certain conformity of behavior through the threat of pain, uh, through the threat of, of punishments. That's the nature of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is the opposite of that. It has power by having power under, by coming under people. It is not concerned first and foremost with conformity of behavior, but rather with trans transformation of the heart, which is something a law can never do, which is something threats can never do. It, it seeks to transform people by laying down your life for them. It's power under rather than power over. Uh, the kingdom of the world can be characterized by the kingdom of the sword. It's the, it's the power over kingdom, whereas the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the cross. It's the power under kingdom. Now, the kingdom of the world is not altogether bad. And all governments are, are variations of the kingdom of the world because they all have to operate, they have to operate by having power over others. You need laws. And they're not altogether bad. In a fallen world, there's multitudes of people who would never do the right thing for the right reason, so you've got to get them to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I don't care why someone doesn't kill me. Uh, it may be that they would kill me, if they, except that they're afraid to go to prison or be executed. So I'm just glad they don't kill me. I, the law isn't concerned with their motives. It's just concerned with their behavior. And in a fallen world, you need it. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 13 and in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 that God uses the kingdoms of this world to keep order in the world, to keep chaos from breaking out, to punish wrongdoers. They have a God-ordained means. Uh, God, God uses them. Some do it better than others, and I happen to think America does it about the best. Uh, but they're all aspects of the kingdom of the world. 
That's why the Bible says that we're to, to, as much as possible, live in agreement or live in conformity, live at peace with whatever kingdom you find yourself in. Whether it's a free country, whether it's a communist country, uh, live in peace with that country. Uh, Obey the laws of the land. Pay your taxes, the Bible says. The Bible says pray for your leaders. The Bible says pray for peace that you might be able to spread the gospel. The kingdom of the world is not altogether bad, but it's not the kingdom of God, and that's what we have to see. It's radically different from the kingdom of God. However relatively good it may be, it's not the kingdom of God, if for no other reason than because it has to operate with power over, whereas the distinctive mark of the kingdom of God is that it's about power under. In fact, from a biblical perspective, and you need to hear this now, a kingdom of God person should have a, a healthy suspicion towards all variations of the kingdom of the world, however good they may be. There's something dangerous about power over. There's something corrupting about power over. And in fact, while God uses the kingdom of the world to maintain order, you also got to know that the devil uses the kingdom of the world. And for a kingdom of God person, that has to create a healthy distance between you and the kingdom of the world. Now, you work that out differently depending on the variation of the kingdom of the world that you're a part of. But there's got to be a healthy distance there. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Listen to that, the whole world. Satan has an influence in everything. That includes the governments of the world. John 12, 14, and 16. Satan is the ruler of, the air, of this world, Jesus says. He's the god of this age and the principality and power of the air, according to Paul. And that rulership applies to governments. Some are better than others, but all have, we have to know this as kingdom of God people, a diabolical influence in them. In Luke chapter 4, the devil led Jesus up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give the glory and all this authority of all these kingdoms, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. Uh, as the, the passage says here, the devil apparently holds a lot of the chips in terms of how the power of the world is wielded. Uh, he is the ultimate power over master. It says in Revelations chapter 11 that the voices in, in heaven, is talking about the end times now, they all saying that the kingdom, note the singular, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the sun. All of the, 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 the variations of the kingdom of this world are part of one kingdom, and ultimately Satan is its ruler. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all equally bad. Not at all. They're just relatively good, relatively bad. But the kingdom of God person has always got to know that there is a corrupting influence in them, and that has to give us a healthy suspicion towards them. Two points I want us to get from this. Number one, Jesus didn't come to tweak the kingdom of the world, didn't come to dress up the kingdom of the world, didn't come to improve the kingdom of the world, didn't come to give us the perfect version of the kingdom of the world. He didn't come to give us a new way of having power over, a new way of running society. He came into the power over kingdom to establish a power under kingdom. What he came to do was to provide a radically different alternative to all the ways of doing the kingdom of the world because this is a kingdom that's about power under and it, secondly, it means that the kingdom of God person, whatever else you do, we're in the world but not of the world, however else you're in the world, however else you participate in the kingdom of this world, you've got to know that your ultimate allegiance, second to none, by far and away, has got to be to the kingdom of God. 
And never must we compromise the uniqueness of our calling as kingdom of God people for the sake of a kingdom of the world sort of agenda. In fact, the Bible tells us, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're to see ourselves in whatever variation of the kingdom of the world that we're in, including America. We're to see ourselves as exiles and aliens. Our citizenship is in the household of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. Before you're a citizen of the United States or of China or of Russia, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the, your king is the king of the kingdom of, uh, of God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain that we, are, we have our ultimate allegiance to, and we're to follow his orders and none other. We have a job to do, a warfare to carry out, but you've got to know that the battles we're supposed to fight are not the battles of the kingdom of the world. Paul says that our enemies are not enemies of flesh and blood. Uh, rather, our warfare is against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. As a kingdom of God person, you've got to know this. If it's flesh and blood, you've got one job as a kingdom of God person, and that is to demonstrate outrageous love to them, to be willing to wash their feet, to come under them, to serve them. Our enemies are not the liberals. Our enemies are not the conservative. The enemy is not the Republicans. The enemy is not the Democrats. The enemy is not the ACLU. The enemy is not the abortionist or the evolutionist or the gay rights activist. The enemy is the principality and power of the air, and our job is to topple down his empire by imitating Jesus Christ with outrageous acts of love. You see, as, as, the, the, the particular variation of the kingdom of the world that we're a part of asks our opinion on, on how the sword should be wielded. And I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for everybody who's sacrificed to, to give us that right. But you've got to know that, that your ability, you know, you vote, vote how, how you feel led, but your ability to vote isn't your unique authority as a kingdom of God person. Your ability to carry a sign is not your unique authority as a kingdom of God person. Your ability to influence how the sword's going to be swung is not your, your uh, unique authority as a kingdom of God person. Your ability to fight for your religious rights, everybody does that. That's not your unique authority as a kingdom of God person. Your unique authority is defined by how you love, by how you say sacrifice of your life for the sake of others, by, by how you imitate Jesus Christ, especially towards those that the society wants to throw away as the scum and, and the perverts and the infidels and, and those that have no worth. The kingdom of God person, your unique authority is found in, in, in your willingness to trust the cross rather than the sword and put the sword aside, for this, put power under over aside for the sake of having power under. The kingdom of God is not found in fighting to be a conquering Caesar. It's found in imitating the crucified Messiah. It's not found in picking up the sword. It's found in picking up the cross when you could use the sword. Now, a little lesson from history. I'm going to talk about the, what's called the Constantinian Revolution, where the church adopted the slogan that we still have with us today, uh, the church militant and triumphant. The Constantinian Revolution, if you could put that up on the screen there. A little history here. For the first four centuries of the church, this, the church grew by people imitating Jesus, literally. Uh, they, they were persecuted. They were put to death. The word martyr means witness, but it became synonymous with one who dies for their faith because they were, that's the main way that they witnessed. And the church miraculously spread uh, throughout the Roman Empire in a, a very hostile sort of environment. Then in the fourth century, Constantine, the emperor Constantine, uh, converted to Christianity, and it's not clear whether he did it for sincere motives or whether he was just trying to uh, do a political move. It was certainly politically advantageous for him to do this because Christians were becoming so numerous. And now Christians for the first time began to taste the possibility 
of having the power of the sword. Constantine legalized Christianity in 313 with the Edict of Milan, and later on in 381, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And people began to think, as I hear a lot of people think today, that maybe all that imitating Jesus, picking up the cross, you know, turning the other cheek, all of that, maybe that is a sort of a provisional thing. That was just a, a of, of course they didn't pick up the sword because they couldn't pick up the sword. They were overpowered. But now we've got Constantine on our side. And now we can have power over, and since we know the truth, and since we are the righteous one, and now we can enforce Christianity. And that's what began to happen. In 381, Christianity was legalized, and the first infidel was put to death in 382. And what follows are centuries of some of the most barbaric bloodshed the world has ever seen. Heretics were routinely put to death. Uh, unbelievers routinely put to death. The Inquisition, the Crusades, Muslims. Uh, blood flowed freely in some of the most barbaric ways. It was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was unthinkable. There was always a strand of the church that resisted this, that, 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 that had a prophetic critique of the church and said, this isn't the way we're supposed to do it. But most of them were put to death because they critiqued the church. The Cathars, the, El the, the, the Albigensians, the Abelardians, and others uh, just slaughtered. Whole towns of them uh, slaughtered because they disagreed with the official teaching of the Holy uh, Catholic Church and of Constantine and whatever. But it continued on with the Protestant Reformation. There was no improvement there whatsoever. And we've got to see the, the demonic irony in all of this. And the name of the one who taught us to turn the other cheek the church cut off people's heads. In the name of the one who taught us to love our enemies, to lay down our life for our enemies, the church burned enemies alive. In the name of the one who forbid taking up the sword, the church swung the sword and swung it hard. And it was, we've got to see the insanity of this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that you can have the gift of prophecy, speak in tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, and do all good deeds. You can have every religious, uh, admirable attribute you could ever hope for. But if you don't have love, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, what you do have is altogether worthless. In terms of the kingdom, it is absolutely of no value. It's a noisy gong. It's just religious noise. And then he tells us what love is. It looks like Jesus Christ. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love believes all things and hopes all things. And now we have a history of people using the sword and it wasn't loving. Killing people is not loving. Killing people is rude. Uh, burning people alive is, is, is not believing the best in them. You're not hoping for the best in them. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's insane that, the, 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 that the, the movement, the counter, the revolutionary movement that was to be founded on the cross and on, on outrageous love came to this. And maybe you're wondering, why is this preacher bashing church history like this? Uh, you know, boy, you should be, you know, kind of uh, putting the best spin on it here, you know? But you know what? I believe that as kingdom people, we should be at the front of the line criticizing that church history in order to distance, distance the genuine kingdom of God from anything that would do that to other people, burn people alive or, or whatever. Ask yourself this question. Where has the church ever succeeded in conquering the culture where, it's, where it continued to be the church? We have, we've had 15 years to experiment with this, and I submit to you there's not one example of the church militant and triumphant actually winning the culture where it continued to be the church. In fact, 
One could make the case that in almost every instance where the church conquered the culture, things were a whole lot less godly than they were before the Christians conquered the culture. For a thousand years, the church, in one form or another, reigned over in Europe. Of course, the Christians killed each other over who was going to reign. A lot of blood was shed. But through a lot of war and a lot of bloodshed and a lot of persecution, the church succeeded in taking over Europe. For a thousand years, some form or other, the church uh, reigned there. How wonderful was the victory? The history was barbaric, but you go over to Europe now, and there's not much of a church left. Go to any of the, the countries where there once was a state church, where the, 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 we succeeded in making a Christian nation, and you'll find Denmark, Sweden, Finland, uh, Norway, uh, England, Scotland, there's hardly a church left. When the church picks up the sword, it dies by the sword. My point is this. When the church wins the cultural wars, it invariably loses. When it conquers the world, it becomes the world. When you go to bed with Constantine, you wake up as Constantine. When you put your trust in the sword, you lose the cross, which tells us this, and, and, and Holy Spirit, sear this into us. Everything hangs on our preserving the integrity and the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. Everything hangs on our willingness to hold on to the cross and not pick up the sword in the name of the one who made us kingdom people. Everything hangs on our preserving the, unique, uh, the, the, the radical distinctness of the kingdom of God authority that we have. Everything hangs on our imitating the crucified Messiah, not aspiring to be a conquering Caesar. Everything hangs upon our willingness to uh, give up power over if need be in order to express power under. Everything hangs on our willingness to trust the power of the cross, the power of self-sacrificial love, even when it looks like we're losing, even when it looks like Jesus is being arrested, even when it looks like immorality is winning the day, to trust the power of the cross, even when it looks like our rights might be denied, even when it looks like the world may in fact be, be conquering us, even when it means that we might in fact lose our own lives, because when you trust in the sword, you lose the cross. And everything hangs upon hanging on the cross. Now let me talk about America. And this is setting up what I'll talk about next week. My concern is that, to a large degree, we still have a Constantinian model of Christianity that we're, that we're working from. My concern is that we have not learned from church history and have not learned from our master and our king. My concern is that we still tend to trust the sword, not literally with violence, but we trust the power of, getting, uh, of, of, of having say over people. Consider this slogan that I hear more and more frequently. We're going to take America back for God. We're going to take America back for God. You hear it everywhere. It creates a lot of fervor. Nothing creates more fervor and historically more bloodshed than religious fervor and patriotism fused together. That's what we're fighting right now with uh, the... the uh, with Osama bin Laden. And my concern is that the conservative church to a large degree has fused the cross and the sword. In fact, in Constantinian Christianity, the symbol for the cross was the symbol for the sword. They became one and the same. And my concern is that there's large segments of the church in America that is doing that very same thing. I was at a church about 10, 12 years ago. It was right after the Iraqi war, uh, uh, the, the first Iraqi war in 92. And uh, it was a 4th of July celebration, and I had led a seminar uh, that actually didn't go very well um, as a part of this campaign. 
And at the end, they had a big service. And uh, they, they showed a video of a Christian, a Christian spokesperson who was also a general and was given this God and country speech with, with military music in the background. And, and uh, you know, everyone was getting goosebumps about it. And then at the end of it, they had three crosses. They, they showed Calvary with the three crosses, Christ being in the center, and against the backdrop of a waving flag. And then these fighter jets came down and flew over with bombs on them, flew over the crosses and then split, and then, and then the, the, the thing froze. And the place erupted in cheers. Just, yes! Now, I was first bewildered, and then I was very angry, and then I became very depressed. It was one of those days where I, with half seriousness, thought about becoming a Buddhist. Uh, I, 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 I was just grieved. How could the cross and the sword become so fused together? Now, some would say, well, wait a minute, that was a just war. You know, the, there was dozens of, of people, uh, it, Kuwait was losing their freedom, and dozens of people uh, were being raped and, and beaten up by, by the Iraqis, and it was a just war. And maybe it was. That's a kingdom of the world thing. They asked for your opinion on that, we vote. You know, vote your conscience on that. But here's what I, as a kingdom of God person, we have to at least have enough, enough healthy distance to ask questions that maybe others who are more sold out to the kingdom of the world would never think of asking. For example, if it's always about freedom, that, that's what we're really interested in. Why, two years later, when 800,000 Rwandans were being massacred in one, of the, uh, in, in one of the most ungodly acts of genocide, there are no godly acts of genocide, but it was, bar it was absolutely ludicrous. In a three-month period of time, 800,000 Rwandans were being massacred. We knew about it. We got reports about it every day. We pulled our UN troops out. Now, why, why is that? One could, you know, think that maybe it's, there's something other than freedom going on here. That's a kingdom of this world kind of thing. You can iron it out however you want. But what, what grieved me the most was this. Whatever, whatever you think about how the sword should be wielded in Iraq or Rwanda or whatever, as a kingdom of God person, your, your, most, your central defining mission in life is to demonstrate Calvary-like love to the Iraqi people. To, to be willing to die for them, even if they are your political enemies. Uh, to be willing to serve them, that's our distinctive call. And now I'm sitting in a church where we're cheering that 25,000 of them just got slaughtered. And I don't care about the reason it should grieve us, because those souls are as precious as our souls. That's the unique angle of the kingdom of God. My, my, my concern about the slogan, Take America Back for God, is that it expresses a trust in the sword, a trust in power over. And the thinking is, is kind of like this. If we can just get Constantine on our side once again, the government, if we, if we win, if we win, then God wins because we're on God's side and we're so close. If we just pass some laws that get rid of sinful behavior defined by us and enforce policies on those sinners, and we'll tell you who the select group of sinners are. It's not this, our sins, it's, it's their sins. If we can just pass those particular policies, then, then, the, then, then we'll take America back for God. If we just wield the sword in, in the right way, then this will be uh, the, the, the godly country that it, that it once was. If we can just get the scum off the street and prevent perverts from having rights and get the infidels out of office and, and keep the under, uh, one nation under God and the Pledge of Allegiance and maybe get our prayer back into school, but of course it's got to be Christian prayer, our prayer, because it's the only true prayer, then we'll get our way. And when we get our way, then God gets his ways because our ways are God's ways. Our ways are holy, right, just, and true. 
And so it's good that we have the sword to enforce them. Now, I, this, I'll grant that our ways are holy, godly, just, and true. But see, if the church, as the church, is going to throw the first stone, the church better be without sin. And a few people have noticed the irony that the percentage of the population that has the highest divorce rate is the ones who are most vocal lobbying for the sanctity of marriage. You just got to know that. If the church as a church takes a stand like that, you've got to ask the question once again, when has the church ever won the fight that many are trying to win right now where it hasn't ceased being the true church? Is this really what we want? And even more fundamentally, most fundamentally, when did Jesus, the one that we're supposed to imitate, ever do things like that? ever try to pick up the sword. We're called to imitate him. And you see, Jesus went to Calvary for those scum and for those perverts and for those infidels. And however else you're going to you know, use your power to vote in the world, you've got to know this. Uh, as a church, uh, what we're concerned about is the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, those aren't scums and those aren't perverts and those aren't infidels. Those are people for whom Jesus died. And our one singular task in life is to ask the question, how can we express that worth, that Calvary kind of love to them? How can we visit them in prison if need be? How do we uh, house the homeless, uh, as Jesus says in Matthew 25? That's the question that we live in as kingdom of God people. Part- we're, we're, the version of the kingdom of God that we are in Ask our opinion about things, and we can influence how the sword is, 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 is wielded. And do that as you feel led. But as kingdom of God people, and that's what the Woodland Hills Church has got to be about, our first allegiance, bar none, is to our king. And to imitate the radically countercultural revolutionary way that he acted, to build the radical countercultural revolutionary unique kingdom of God that he came to establish. Amen. Let me ask one more question. And this sets up how I'll start next week. And I'm, I'm just, I told you ahead of time I was passionate about this. I, I, I have great concern over this thing. But here, here, here's the thing. I will confess to you that I honestly don't have a clue what it even means to say, take America back to God. I, 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 I will just tell you, I hear that a lot, all the time. More and more on the radio, on television. And every time, I, I, I just, something inside of me turns. I, I, I'm really wondering when the, the, the golden age of America was, when, when we really were a nation under God. Hallelujah, God was being glorified. Was that before, during, or after we loaded five to six million Africans on cargo ships, shipped them over here, and the three million that sur- survived, we enslaved and beat for 200 years? Was that, was that the golden age? I, I'm a little confused on this. Someone help me out. Uh, when God was really being glorified, was it before, during, or after we came over here, declared that this was our country, slaughtered 20 million Amer- uh, Native Americans, stole, cheated their land, put them on reservations. As recently as 1906, we broke our last treaty, taking part back, a part of Oklahoma we had promised. Three decades later, we write a play about it, Oklahoma, land of the free. Is this the golden age? Is this the good old days when God was reigning? I don't get it. I do not, I do not get it. It's not surprising to me that you don't find a lot of Native Americans reciting that slogan, and you don't find a lot of African Americans reciting that slogan. I believe, and I'll I'll, I'll say this more next week and flesh out some of the details, but the myth that this is a Christian nation, that it ever has been a Christian nation, and that if we just tweak the laws a little bit more, it will become a Christian nation, is I think one of the most pernicious diabolical lies that the church has bought into because it completely diffuses the unique authority of the church. Amen. 
We are to win America for Jesus Christ. And we're to win Iraq for Jesus Christ. Made all the harder because of the fusion of the sword and the cross in the recent past. But we're to win Iraq and Cambodia and Haiti and, and the world for Jesus Christ. And you know what? We will do it. The church is to be triumphant. But the church is never to be militant. How we do it and what we trust in the process is everything. And the distinctive mark of the kingdom of God is that we trust in the cross and the power of self-sacrificial love. We ask the question not how can we insist on our own way on this plot of land, but how do we serve those? How do we wash the feet of the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers and every other person that society wants to throw away? That's the question we live in. And you may be thinking, well, well, then we won't win. Obviously, you're just not trusting the power of the cross. Trust it even when it looks like you're not winning. Trust it even if it looks like things are going to hell in a handbasket, literally. Well, not the handbasket's not literally. Uh, but uh, you, you trust it no matter what is going on. See, the hope of the world does not lie in the Christian church conquering. The hope of the world lies in the Christian church being the Christian church and imitating its Lord and Savior. I, I'm just going to close in a prayer. I, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this invitation. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of this radical, distinct, countercultural revolution where you have to sign up to give your life away and you want to be, uh, I encourage you after the service, up here to my right, your left, there'll be a person who will be glad to explain that to you. You sign up to give your life away. That's what it means to join this thing. But I'm telling you, Jesus was right when he said, if you lose your life, you find it. And uh, if, if that's something you want to do, I encourage you to come forward. The prayer team will be up here. If you want to come forward for prayer, uh, come forward for prayer and um, spend some time with them. Let's close, and I'll just end with this prayer. Father, uh, could you just stand? Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Purify our vision. Purify our vision. God, uh, unveil our minds uh, to free it from the polluting force of the kingdom of this world and the principality and power of the air, Lord God. And God, uh, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to have us trust in the power of cross-like love more than anything else. And Lord God, help us to walk with a mindset looking for opportunities to demonstrate that cross-like love to all people at all times, Lord God. Help us to announce, Lord God, with our words and with our action, even more with our action, that we are ambassadors of a kingdom in which there are no scum and there are no perverts and there are no infidels. There's just sinners who have an infinite worth because of Calvary, Lord God. And may our life, Lord, help, help, may our life glorify you, our King, by imitating Jesus. And for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go out and carry the cross.